Hello, my name is Barbara, and this is Neuroscience Amateur Hour. So today's episode is part two of my little mini-series on the neuroscience of language and speech. Two weeks ago, we covered the neuroscience of speech production, specifically the brainstem circuit involved in the physical manipulation of our laryngeal muscles. To briefly review, the laryngeal motor cortex sends out a command signal for the laryngeal muscles in the throat to contract, and that travels down to the nucleus ambiguous in the brainstem. This brain nucleus houses the cell bodies of the motor neurons that will eventually connect directly onto the laryngeal muscles. It's the movement of the laryngeal muscles plus the air we expel from our lungs that results in sound coming from our mouths. We're further able to use our mouths and tongues to manipulate that sound to produce specific pitches and tones that make up the words and syllables that in turn make up language as we know it. The same language that Oliver Wendell Holmes described as the blood of the soul into which thoughts run and out of which they grow. But what happens if someone doesn't have the ability to hear language? If they're born deaf, deaf, or if they become deaf at some some point in their life? How do the brain regions involved in language production and auditory processing change? So that's what this episode is about. The neuroscience of deafness. Let's find out more. I know that there's a large variety of deafness that I'm failing today. Deafness. Over 400 kinds, actually. But the kind that I'm going to focus on today is the kind that occurs before birth, where an individual is never exposed to a sound in their life, otherwise known as congenital hearing loss. Now, what would be the cause? Well, in a large proportion of cases, it's genetic. Scientists have identified a few genes that are linked to prenatal deafness, including the gene GJB2, which encodes a protein called Connexin 26. Connexin 26 is fundamental in the functioning of the cochlea, the snail-shaped part of the ear that's responsible for translating changes in pressure, because that's what sound is, into neural signals. In fact, any gene whose mutation or alteration could result in changes in the structure or function of the ear may result in deafness. If the ears don't work, you can't hear. But genetics are only part of the story. Prenatal deafness in a child can occur from environmental factors, such as complications during the mom's pregnancy from infections like rubella, toxoplasmosis, and herpes. There's also some drugs, known as autotoxic drugs, which can damage a baby's hearing system before birth. So what's going on in the brain of deaf individuals? Scientists have been able to show that early auditory deprivation alters cortical and subcortical brain regions primarily linked to auditory and language processing, which in turn results in behavioral consequences. How does auditory deprivation alter brain structure? So when a child's brain is developing, connections form across the brain like spider webs. Neurons will bridge the different brain regions involved in processing information to those involved in generating emotion and all the rest of them, etc., etc. And in order for the brain to properly form the connections it needs to, we need to experience things within a, quote, sensitive period, unquote. In the case of learning how to properly process sound, we need to be able to hear sounds. The sensitive period we're talking about is when the brain is maximally plastic, maximally able to adjust and configure its structures and circuits to the individual's experience. 
In the case of auditory processing, this sensitive period lasts about three and a half years, although plasticity remains in some but not all children until approximately age seven. And I bring this up because these experiments are super important for understanding when it's best to place a cochlear implant in a congenitally deaf child, but more on that towards the end of the episode. So before I move on, I want to dive a little bit deeper into neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity is the brain's ability to change and adapt as the result of experience. There's two broad types. The first is functional plasticity, the brain's ability to move functionality from a damaged part of the brain to undamaged areas. The second is structural plasticity, the brain's ability to actually change its physical structure as a result of learning. For a long time, it was thought that this neuroplasticity was only present during early childhood development. But as we understand more and more, we've come to know that our brains are neuroplastic, to a smaller degree, throughout our lives. And the awesome thing is that neuroplasticity is actually extremely variable across individuals and throughout our lifetimes, which makes it really, really fucking cool, but also kind of a bitch to study sometimes. But back to how this relates to deafness. So several studies have demonstrated that there's a developmental decrease of synaptic plasticity in the auditory cortex after early deafness. The auditory cortex is the part of the temporal lobe that processes auditory information in humans and many other vertebrates. In short, early deafness means less plasticity in the part of the brain responsible for processing sound. The organization of the auditory cortex is in its own way pretty damn cool. The primary auditory cortex, which is often referred to as A1, actually has a precise topographical map of the cochlea, a tonotopic map, if you will. Now, what that means is if you move from front to back or like anterior to posterior in this brain region, you'll see a representation of sound of increasing frequency. And that's pretty fucking cool, right? We also see this kind of organization in the visual cortex and somatosensory cortex, so it makes sense that we can see it here too. So if someone has been deaf their entire life, this tonotopic map will not develop correctly. So what's that brain real estate being used for? It turns out that the vision part of your brain takes over. I found this paper from 2017 that wanted to understand the principles that govern large-scale reorganization in the brain like this. They drew from findings in the visually impaired that several visual regions preserve their task specificity, but might switch uh, to tactile or auditory input. So in their experiment, they asked deaf and hearing adults to discriminate between temporarily complex sequences of stimuli while being imaged in an fMRI, so that researchers could look at their brain activity. They saw that the same auditory regions were activated when deaf subjects performed the visual version of the task and when hearing subjects performed the auditory version of the task. Simply put, in deaf humans, the high-level auditory cortex switches its input from sound to vision. What? It's like there's no wasted real estate, or no wasted neural real estate. The brain is kind of the literal embodiment of that meme. Uh, the, the, the guy's like, no free real estate meme. I don't know. It's hard. It's hard to convey over over podcast. But my first question after learning this, of course, was, wait, do deaf people see better than hearing people? 
It kind of falls in line with this well-known idea that if you lose a sense, the others will get stronger to compensate. And with the functional plasticity we talked about towards the beginning, that would make sense, right? And while the idea sounds good, it turns out that deaf individuals exhibit both better and worse visual skills than hearing controls. Researchers have shown that in cases where you only look at deafness, you do see some enhancements in visual cognition. They're not as universal as one would expect. In fact, they're limited to the aspects of vision that are attentionally demanding and would normally benefit from auditory visual convergence. Think things like attentive listening. You need to pay attention to what that person is saying, and you have to look at them as well. In examples such as this, where you integrate multiple sensory modalities, a hearing-impaired individual may very well have an advantage in the visual part of such a task. But the auditory cortex is one thing. What about the brain regions that are involved in language processing? As I'm sure you all well know, deaf individuals will sometimes learn and use sign language to communicate with others. That's not universally true. From my understanding, it depends on the resources you have throughout your life. If you're born into a community with other deaf members, you may pick up sign language from your loved ones or you learn it at school, but obviously not everyone has the resources to do that. Sign language, and I'll primarily be talking about American Sign Language because that's what I have the closest association with, is incredibly cool because it is very much its own language. And it has stronger similarities to Japanese or Navajo than to English. I think a common misconception is that people think that sign language is simply English, but it's um, like on the hands. And that's just categorically not true. It's completely its own language. So sign language relies on someone seeing and processing gestures and body movements that convey letters and words and sentiments. And because it's its own language, it's a fantastic way of studying language and language processing. If you remember a previous point that was uh, in two episodes ago about Braca's area, that's the, the part of the left hemisphere of the brain that's thought to be vital in producing spoken words. If you lesion or damage this area, people just aren't able to produce words at all. They can, like they have the language processing, they have the language production thoughts, but they're not able to produce the words. It's geographically very close to the regions that control the movements of our tongues and our lips, so that makes sense. But in a twist, if you damage Braca's area in a deaf signer, they will in fact have trouble producing signs or communicating with others. Those with damage to Wernicke's area, which is another brain region thought to be involved in processing incoming language rather than producing it, have trouble comprehending sign language. So the same brain regions are in fact necessary for language production and processing in both hearing and deaf folks. But the specialization of these cortical networks for language processing does not appear to be driven either by the acoustic requirements for hearing a spoken language or by the articulatory requirements for speaking. It seems likely then that it's the specialized requirements of language processing itself, including for instance, syntax, composition, and understanding coherent concepts that determine the final form of specialized language circuits. It doesn't matter if you're hearing or you're deaf, language circuits will form regardless of the means of communication. The deaf community is a pretty incredible one, and for a child that's born congenitally deaf, many choose to stay deaf. 
There are some who strongly argue against implants um, to that will you know help someone to hear, arguing that from the point of view that deafness is doesn't need to be fixed. But there are also some who choose to get cochlear implants, and these are small electronic devices that have a microphone and a speech processor, a speech processor that ultimately converts sound into electrical impulses sent to the auditory nerve, which is very much just like a normal ear. If this cochlear implant is implanted at a young age, within that sensitive period that we talked about earlier, within those like first three years, the auditory cortex and its tonotopic map will develop like normal, to an extent. And the neuroplasticity of the auditory cortex after implantation is actually a pretty hot topic to this day, and I highly encourage you to do your own research if this is a topic that interests you. But that is a bite-sized look at the neuroscience of deafness. I hope that you enjoyed the episode and you've learned something new. This episode, and I'm going to work on my backlog, uh, will be published with the transcript along with the actual episode. This episode has forced me to reevaluate my efforts to make my work accessible to everyone, including deaf individuals, and I'm going to work on it. I've cited all my relevant sources and papers in the show notes, and you should keep an eye out on Instagram for some cool figures that I think are pertinent. Please rate, review, and subscribe. And if you have any questions, comments, concerns, queries, or complaints, please email me at neurosciencemateurhour at gmail.com or DM me at neurosciencemateurhour on Instagram. This podcast is available on pretty much any platform I can think of. And uh, please recommend it to your friends and loved ones. Also, if you're feeling so inclined to financially support my work, please buy me a cup of coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash neuroscience. I really appreciate it. Also, if you have something you really want to learn about, please contact me, and you'll probably see an episode about it soon. Happy researching, and I hope to see you again.